Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. It's difficult to introduce Wendy McCarthy without reaching for superlatives and overused cliches such as feminist icon and life well lived. Suffice to say, she is one of Australia's most revered and important public figures. It was a joy to discuss her five. So, Wendy McCarthy, welcome to Five of My Life. Thank you very much, Nigel. It's good to be here. Now, I have to say before we start, congratulations. I adored your book. I mean, I just, I've just i got a copy of it here and my copy and it's all the pages are turned down. I've got notes. I've got post-it notes in it. How, how is it going? It seems to be selling extremely well and I'm just accustomed or becoming accustomed to speaking about myself pretty well every other day, which among <laughs> other things is extremely vulgar. And I've got gigs going out until November, so I think we can say it's a success. Oh, well, good on you. It deserves to be. I absolutely uh, loved it. I'm looking forward to talking more about it, but we're here for five of my life. And I have to ask you, how did you find the process? Did you enjoy it or was it a real pain having to choose five? No, it wasn't a pain to choose five. I, I loved it and it really pushed me into thinking about what things appeal to me in terms of sound and sight and place and memory and nostalgia. And I was quite surprised with what I came up with when I, when I asked myself the question. And ever since then, even yesterday, I was reading something about the book that I mentioned and the fact that the woman who wrote it um, has just left a, left a vast amount of her estate uh, to young writers. I am so pleased to hear you say that because what many of my guests say is they were surprised at the period of reflection and, and looking back on their life and choosing. Yeah. And, and then it, it sort of leads you down other rabbit holes. Um, but we're here to talk about your choices. And mm-hmm. on Five of My Life, uh, it is traditional that we always start with the film. Uh, and you have chosen not one less the 1999 Chinese film. Many people regard it as the greatest film ever to come out of China. Quite a big call. Uh, tell us why you have chosen that film. Often when I'm sitting on an aeroplane and for 15 years of my life that was very frequent and travelling long distances, I bought a Kindle and I'd read and then I'd get sick of reading and then I'd watch a not very good selection of movies But I was always looking for a quirky one in the art films and I found that film and I was utterly enchanted. It's everything as a teacher you would dream about. A child who wants, and a school, a child who wants to learn, crossing a continent to find enough pupils to keep the school open. And in my life, going to a one-teacher school in rural New South Wales, if the numbers drop between 25, more than this little one was looking for, 
um, our school was in threat of closure. So we valued the railway fetless children and all the other children who came apart, whose parents might have been drovers and so on. And the community would always say to the Department of Education, well, the truth is we... We may not always have 25, but sometimes we have 28. And if you flatten it out over the queue, we think this school should stay open. So I knew how precious that was. And it really stirred my soul. And I, coming back from that particular trip, which I think was to London, I watched it twice. Back to back? Yeah. <laughs> Did you uh, shed a tear when she appeared on TV to try and, uh, to try and find the young boy, the, the pupil that had gone away? I remember crying when I watched the film. Yes, yes, yes. That teacher in the film is 13. You you started teaching at 16, is that correct? I went to university at 16. Right. But I started teaching at 20. 20, right, okay. And tell us a bit about your early teaching experience. I think when I walked into the classroom, it just felt like coming home. I thought, "This, this is where I'm meant to be. And other kids especially people who were doing economics and so on, were thinking about working in banks or for BHP or something. But I knew the minute I hit the classroom, that was my place. And it was, and it was tragic when I had to leave it, but I just figured I'd work in different classrooms and it couldn't be a school classroom. I loved the idea of, and it was a girls' school, my first teaching school, of young girls getting a start in life learning to be engaged as, as, as citizens, although we wouldn't have used those words then, but hoping that when they left my care, they'd have agency over their lives and their lives of learning. The facts were, you know, they, were, they had to get them through exams, but the truth is you're really, and you're really trusted with the lives of young people, and that's really special. And I loved it. I loved playing hockey with them and teaching them to debate and listening to their stories and a lot of teaching is about storytelling i gather uh, you are um a ferocious reader is that yes. still true yeah. yes yeah. yes and, and, and is, is it was the was the quote you, you you feel sick if you don't read a novel once every 10 days <laughs> that's <laughs> right <laughs> what, what, what are you reading currently what did i finish uh yes well what i'm reading at the moment is actually not a novel it's antoinette latouf's book how to lose white friends how to lose white friends yes <laughs> and and i'm reading a lot of multicultural literature written by young women and 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 Indigenous women. I read Larissa Berendt's last book and I thought that was just a magical book from so many aspects. I've read The Mother Wound last week, which is not really, it's not a novel, it's a, it, it could easily be. And I'm just about to start reading Ruth Wilson's book, The 90-Year-Old Woman Who Talks About How Jane Austen Gave Her Purpose in Life. Fantastic. In 80s. Have you read any of the um, the Amor Towles books, A Gentleman in Moscow, The Lincoln Highway? Yes, yes. What, 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 do, you, what do you reckon to those? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, and I have a strange relationship with Moscow and, and Russia. I've been intending to go there for 50 years and now I think I may never get there, which is really sad. <laughs> right. There's always something that yeah. you can't do. I've been on the ground on an air, in an airport, but that's about it. And I feel that's a big miss in my life. And I'm thinking, mm, it's not looking promising at the moment. Well, you never know. You no, never, you never know. know. Um, we're going to move to your second choice on Five in My Life. Uh, and you have chosen what many people feel is one of the most important books written over the last couple of hundred years, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee's 1960 classic. Uh, tell us why you've chosen that, Wendy. 
I think that is the book that introduced me in a very intimate way to parenting, racism, community, and how personal is really political. And we want personal to be political. When you deeply care about something and you think it has to change, that connection helps you be strategic and political about what matters to you. And that tells you about racism in a deeply shocking way. But it was calm. It was calm and powerful. It also tells you about the love of a father, the joy of an unfettered childhood, that just to be able to go out and play. And it just about ticks every single box. You know, it's a head and heart book. It's a story of our time and, and probably will be for a very long time. And I've always loved American literature. I'm finding it hard to love America at the moment, but I have always had a love affair. I've for a long time had a, long, a love affair with America. And I'm deeply sad about what's happening there now. I'm writing a bit on Roe v. Wade. I think that America is in for extraordinary pain and in danger of becoming a third world country mm. in the next 20 years. It is inconceivable that what will happen to children and uh, women and children with this new law. You can't fix it by just changing a few border laws. This is a profound change in what people think about women, which is clearly they don't think very much. It's hard as a man to to, to sort of put this into the right words, but it's a generational thing. Is It's none of our business. I, d- I don't understand why men feel... I mean, it must be generational. Well, my granddaughter, who's doing second year med in Melbourne... I said to her, what did you think when you heard that news? And she said, Grandma, I screamed because we were listening and and a group of kids in college. And she said we'd been talking about it. And she said, "Ah," and a lot of the girls were crying and some of the young boys, (laughs) young men said, well, well, that just means you just have to get a vasectomy straight away. And she said, but after that reaction, we then sat down and talked about it. And she said, you know, I love the boys that I work with and, and, and college with. She said, but, you know, men must hate women to do this. He said, I can't understand it. How much do you hate women? Don't they have mothers and sisters? My dad wouldn't do that. I think that's, that's the visceral point for women that that silly Supreme Court has no idea about. And Donald Trump, I mean, such a shocking human being and his relationships with women. And to think that, you know, his idea of success is putting people on the Supreme Court to curtail the rights of women and the ownership of their bodies. And, I mean, that's that's just a little black and white number compared with the terminal damage to the status of women and their place in society. It will take years and years and years to overcome. And the only solution that I see is that Biden just expands the size of the court, but it still will take a long time. So, so the notion, if there were... I don't know, uh, 20 women on a on a board that would mandate that men had to do a certain thing that they didn't want to. It, it, it's inconceivable. It, it is absolutely it, it's just inconceivable. In, it, it, right. 20 women that I'd never met said yeah. I, I had to, uh, I, I don't know, as you say, have a, have a vasectomy at yeah. 23. You'd say, yeah. you, you'd get yeah. nicked. What, what's yeah. it got to do with you? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just... A, and, get and, out and, of our bedrooms. Well, well, yes, and so the, the thing that I find... slightly depressing because I'm a long-range optimist. I think in the main, humanity works it out. 
you know, we, we I do too. We sort of we end. You know, the arc of justice is long, but in the end, you know, we end slavery. Yeah. I think we'll sort out the environment. I think we'll, you know, so. You know, I think the, the lot of women, I know there's lots still to do, but it has got better from my grandmother's grandmother's day to now. So I sort of feel that we're going in the right direction. Yeah, uh, that, That's my chosen narrative. Yeah. Uh, and this is an inconvenient fact because you it's go... It's a well, very it, inconvenient go, fact. Oh, yeah. But it will damage generations of women. It's like the women of my era who had backyard abortions. Mm. And the women probably 10 years before me, I'm 80, so the 90-year-old women remember the the, brut- the real brutality and kindness of the backyard abortion. Mm. Mm. But even, you know, when I was at university, girls disappeared. Mm. And they, mostly they never came back to university. It ruined their lives. And of what, good, of what use is that to society? So this obsession, well, it, and I'm afraid it's not going to go away easily because it's about religion and faith, and control. It's coercive control at its very finest. My my, my dear mum passed away last year, and uh, I had to go over and, and uh, clear out uh, her house. And going through her house, um, we found uh, a box of sort of, uh, you know, trinkets and, and important things that she kept. And in it, there was the leaflet that she was given uh, when she got engaged. And uh, it had advice on what to do and one of the things I've I've put it in the book that I'm publishing was um, there's a pamphlet it said um, be a good wife dispute not with him be the occasion what it may but much rather deny yourself the trifling satisfaction of having your own will so (laughs) that's I mean my gorgeous lovely mum is being and and mum and dad were lovely and fabulous parents and things but the advice I mean, that pamphlet would have been written by someone who thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah. The role, the hardwired role that they had for women was just less. Half a human. Lesser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah be yeah, half a human. Half a human. You go, oh. Have okay. half your heart and half your body yeah. Yeah. and be a servant. Well, I mean, it even sounds crazy and bizarre to be talking about it, but that's the reality of the American philosophy about women as exemplified by the Supreme Court. And the fact that a woman is supporting it is deeply disturbing. And what would Atticus Finch say? Gosh, can you imagine? <laughs> what would Atticus Finch say? I don't know, but it's it, it's a dark stain that will spread just as we felt the narrative, as you said, was going in the right way. And you're looking at two Americas. You're looking at the secular America. Yes. I wrote a thing about Roe v. Wade a couple of weeks ago and after I'd written the piece, I thought, what was that all about, Wendy? And I thought, actually, I have to go back and just change it a bit because what I was postulating and finally got to was have we now lost the leadership of American women in the world? And we have. And in fact, it finished with Clinton. When Hillary Clinton couldn't become president, she won more votes than Donald Trump a hideous individual, and she was not good enough. We knew that we'd lost something, but I don't think we realised what we really lost. You know, the women's electoral lobby was based on the model, the American model of having conversations with men going towards the presidential election of 1970 to see what women could do in the White House. And it's been an incremental trajectory since then, 
until Clinton. We just didn't understand the implications. Well, here it is. And that's why we have to celebrate everyday Aussies. We could have gone down the Trump way with Morrison, but we haven't. Australians just said, no, thank you. We won't do that. We just come back to the centre. And the centre is where the best of the world is. That's a great link to your third choice on Five in My Life. We're going to brighten the the tone, I imagine, because you have chosen Irvin Berlin's wonderful song that he wrote uh, for Fred Astaire's uh, film, 1935 film Top Hat, but you've chosen the Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong 1956 version of Cheek to Cheek. Oh, I, I love that. I, there's there's almost nothing that Ellis and Louis sing that I don't like, but that was a big song for Gordon and me. And we both loved it when we met. We, talk, we were talking about the music we loved, as you do when you're, what were we, 20? Oh, 21. And uh, I think that it sort of became a, a really signature song for us. And often, you know, it, it did for years and years, you know, we'd get up and dance after dinner and, play, and sing that song. It was really fun. <laughs> and he was a very big into vinyl and, uh, and jazz and classical music. The jazz, we would always find ourselves back to Billie Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald or, or whoever. And living in Pittsburgh for a while, the music was sensational. You know, you could go to a bar in Pittsburgh and Earl Hines or someone would be, you know, playing piano and you'd be there. we'd be the only two white people in the space. But they'd say, when we opened our mouths, they'd say, oh, it's okay if you're Australian. <laughs> you can be here. <laughs> and did you go to lots of live music now? No, I don't now. Well, that, that's not quite true. I, I go to things like the Brandenburg, uh, Australian Chamber Orchestra and the Sydney Symphony. I'm more likely to have jazz on in the house. Right. Um, and I wander around and, and because I can sing along. And it's best I don't sing along in the orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think going to live music orchestrally by yourself, is quite. I'm quite comfortable. I'm not that comfortable by myself in a bar or listening to music now. It's... It's evocative of a time when I always shared it. Yes. And I don't always feel safe there. Yeah. Um, now, now, a complete change of topic. One of the stories in the book that, I mean, there were so many stories, but one of the stories in the book that really shocked me, and I wanted to ask you more about it, is your best friend portraying you by getting pregnant with one of your past boyfriends. And you, and, and the way you wrote about the book, you seem to be so gracious and and you almost glossed over it. I mean, when I go, my God, that would be a uh, such a traumatic occasion for me. I, I would write more about how I, you know, how angry I felt about her or him. Actually, I surprised myself during that time because it never occurred to me that my boyfriend would be the person who'd caused the pregnancy. Always when we had relationships, you know, all our girlfriends knew. And it seemed a bit strange that nobody knew who the person was. And she said, don't ask. And I thought, well, don't ask. And if I thought about it, gave it any time, I probably would have thought, you know, it was maybe something scary like one of the staff members or so on, you know, which would be really bad. Then when she left, and and, and, I mean, it's it's like a bad movie, you know, that I I find the telegram. And uh, anyway, it was my boyfriend. 
And I remember I went screaming up to the college principal and I think probably the way she cared for me and the, the advice that she gave me enabled me to retain me during that episode. And she said, I can remember you can, you, you know, you can destroy yourself or in time you can talk to him and see what happened. But she said, most of all, with the moment, we just actually need to deal with this young woman who's got a pregnancy and nowhere to go. That's when I thought of these guys we'd met at a wedding and they were all med students or newly med people, new professors of medicine. And I rang one. They said, oh, we always have pregnant girls here. Of course we can take her. And then I rang up his mother and said, you need to look after this baby. But by then I'd, I'd worked it out that that's what you do, that the person, the, it was too late to abort. So that the, the most important person really became the baby. It's so, uh, it speaks to sort of a deep empathy in you that you, you looked at the, that what you could do to help rather than focus on... On, on me? Yeah. When I, I know when one of, my grand, one of my granddaughter read it and she said, I'd have killed him. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't know. But anyway, something came into me and enabled me to do that. And so I wouldn't have been able to tell the story otherwise. And of course, the, the story is also about the system. Yeah. That there was no contraception, basically. There was no acknowledgement you know, you were, were told to go to the bookstore and wear something and the woman at the desk would know that you were in trouble and she'd arrange to have a cup of coffee or give you the address of a local abortionist, which I, you know, found out subsequently. But when you're a personal political activist like I am, it, the impulse is personal, but then it's systemic. You think, well, actually, how many people are in this position? Well, it turns out frequently, lots of them. So the task then is to find those people and change the system. And that's what I do best. And remarkable that the, I don't fully understand it, but one of your most recent victories, I, I just stunned that it hadn't already been done. I thought I had to read it twice. I thought, no, 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 no. That, they're confusing the wonderful stuff you did in the 70s with, with something that you've done five years yeah. ago. I mean, obviously it was decriminalised back then when you did the ad. And you know what, Nigel? Yeah. Every woman under 30 thought that was the case. And it wasn't until we could see. And again, it's always the poor. Yes. And the overburdened who... Would suddenly someone was going to be charged, and because we have women's legal services and and so on, we could actually keep it under wraps, um, help that woman who was threatened by jail, and the and the use of the old um, ten years in jail for the doctor and the woman, from a criminal code of eighty years, and we decided we had to stop that. In terms of Roe v. Wade and putting the responsibility on the states. Ruth Bader Ginsburg always said it should never have been with the Supreme Court. We shouldn't have given them the opportunity. Well, that she turned out to be right. But here, we at least have given the states that responsibility. And I think I was talking to a group of women from Parliament last week, and it seems the only state that's a bit out of step now is Western Australia. And of course, it will not surprise you to think about the people in Western Australia who would most need this sort of reproductive health care. Who do you feel are picking up the baton uh, for for women in Australia currently, the, the up and coming generation? Speaking generalities, I think the outstanding young women today 
are young First Nations women who are writing, you know, Megan Davies is writing The Voice, Larissa Barrent, who's a professor of law, as is Megan. Um, they're travelling all over the world. They're telling their stories. They're, I mean, Larissa is, you know, she makes films. Uh, she writes books. She's a professor of law. You know, she's a polymath. And many of them are. I think for me that is the most exciting thing. But very, very close to that are the young women from other cultures who come to Australia who are telling their stories. I think those stories are profoundly important and they see the world differently. I'm reading Antoinette Latouf's book at the moment and I'm putting myself in the picture of how she feels about an Australia where being a brown woman is hard. How different is it? from just being a woman in my life and probably not much, but that's of no consolation to her. That's just an observation from me. So we all have to go through some of these things to find our place in the sun and the centre. And these women have one thing in common. They are educated. And that is the gift of the last feminist revolution to contemporary women. If we think about it, it was the Whitlam government that gave the leave pass and upgraded education and entry for women that has made the difference. I mean, I'm a beneficiary of a Menzies government scholarship program and higher education. I lived in higher education. But the mass movement of women into education is definitely a result of what Whitlam did. At the risk of being incredibly naive, I, I feel we're in good hands. In, in, I mean, we were not, yeah. not in America, we're in Australia. I, yeah. I, if I look around, at, be it the, the teal candidates or whatever, I, I just think, you know, women will sort it out. I, I sort of, I, I have to be an optimist. Well, you have to be an optimist, and I think women will. And I, I have no doubt that uh, women sorted out the election and the numbers back that. Yeah. Uh, from, the, from the march that I went to, I said, just, you have to believe in women because it's women who will change this. We've had enough. And we're educated. We don't want to make enemies of you blokes, but you you just have to get your act together yep. because it's not acceptable to treat us the way we are. And you have to be proud of Australian women for what they did in the last election. And, and I, you just see them, you know, Peter Pat to the election box and no thank you, Morrison. That's right. I'll have the other one. It's nothing unreasonable that's being suggested. The right to choice, the right no, to agency. I no. mean, I mean if, if, you were saying, if you were saying we want to be dominant and you're going to have no right, well, you're not. You're just saying equality. What What on earth? No. What? We just want a 50-50 yeah. world, Nigel. I'll, I'll settle for that. Yeah, I'll vote for that. And that's generous because we're 51% of the population. <laughs> <laughs> Conceding 1%. <laughs> Very kind of you. We're going to go to your fourth choice, the place on Five of My Life. And you've chosen Paddy's River Farm, the Southern Highlands. Could you uh, describe where it is and, and what it's like and then tell us why you've chosen that, Wendy. So leave Sydney and go to Canberra. So Wendy lives in Sydney. She met the man of her dreams who came from Yass and Canberra and we always said somewhere between Canberra and Yass we'd have to have a bit of dirt. Right. He came from a country town and I came from, you know, the bush. And when we lived in England, the people who were kind to us and the, who took us into their families, you know, it was a pretty well-off group. And they all had little places in Kent and so on. And we spent our time rolling around the English countryside and staying with them and thought this has to be the lifestyle of choice. So we found our first farm. We wanted to watch Wimbledon and we didn't have a television set. So we thought if we went to the motel in Mittagong, they'd have a television set. We also had a new baby who was six weeks old, and we might look around for a farm. So we felt, bought our first farm for $10,000, 40-acre convict block. 
And in the end, Gordon had 3,000 acres of cattle production. But for me, everything's about being in the bush. I mean, I, I flourish in cities, but I need it, – it's a visceral need I have. It, it is the hardest thing in my life at the moment not to be have access on a regular basis to a bit of dirt that I'm in love with. We had three farms – and we moved towards Canberra until I said, and yes, and I said, Gordon, that's enough. You know, I love the little 40-acre block that we had that, you know, we used to pick up old bits of glass and tractors and so on and cleaned it up and made it good. And the little old cabin that we built, it was, it was always a special place to be in the bush. I think in the end it just comes from that's where you, where you grow up has a very, very powerful impact on you. And although I've spent the first years in a little country town, Orange. I still think of it as the bush, but after that, it was really the bush. In you know, the, no electricity, no gas, no water, <laughs> except in a tank, um, and no house to start with in a tent. And for listeners, you know, I'm not being over dramatic. It was real, uh, and it got corrected. But we we're always close to the earth, and for me, that's always been important and I still think of myself as a country girl. Talking before we got into the studio we were talking about your, your life now is punctuated by uh, irritatingly frequent funerals. Where have you ended up religiously and what is your thoughts around death? Um, I'm not convinced that there's anything after this life. I'm happy to make the best I can of this life and, and if there is and I don't know about it it'll be a bonus. And I don't think I'll be changing that view before I die. I do see some of my Catholic friends deciding that their chances might be greater if they reconvert. (laughs) (laughs) But I I don't see that. I think that um, this is one crack at life and it's one chance to be whoever I want to be. But I must confess to moments now of planning my funeral. I read an article this morning about how the best thing to do is to plan your own funeral. I thought your funeral was really for someone else, the people left behind. (laughs) (laughs) It seems that now the dominant thing is planning your own, and I'm thinking, I'm not sure I want to do that. You need to choose the picture that they have on the order of service. Right. That's what my brother says. (laughs) Because some numbnut is going to choose a picture of you. You go, no, not that one. Not that one. Not that one. (laughs) I think choosing the music might be important but then I won't be there to hear it, so I don't know. You are now more likely to be cremated than anything else, so there's something more definitive about cremation, I think, yes, than you're not being hedging in your the bets, earth. are you? No, yeah, no, no, there's no coming back there from that. <laughs> We're coming to your fifth choice, your fifth and final choice on Five of My Life, and you have chosen as your possession your dog Daisy May. Tell us about Daisy May, please. All my life, my family's had dogs. And I've always believed that pets enhance our lives. They're that extra part of the family that, you know, they often soak up the tears and of little children and big grown-ups and so on. After Gordon died, our schnauzer Max, uh, who'd been living on the farm for the last 10 years and very much a part of Gordon's life and obviously came to me, Max was heartbroken. And the vet said to me, and he just used to howl, like that sort of shocking movies of dogs howling at the moon. And the vet said to me, when he's got to go, he's he's old and he's got no teeth left and he's just missing Gordon, so it's got to happen. So it happened. And I thought, right, I'm a free woman now. I'll travel and I'll do this and I'll do that. But actually, I needed another beating heart in my house. So for a year, I was without a dog or a pet and... 
it was an inward life and I'm never frightened about being alone, but I could, I did feel lonely and I thought, I think a dog's going to fix this. So I went to London, thought about it and made a few decisions, write my book, get a dog and celebrate the, the abortion thing, get my life back into shape, think about what I'm going to do next, turn 80, have a party. And so I went to get Daisy May and, and she was a fluke. She came from the place that Max had come from because there were seven in the letter instead of four. She's an unusual little soul, Daisy May. She, and the woman who sold her to me also sold her brother to my son, Sam. And she said, you know, that the boy dog, Juice, you know, he's a big buffy boy. But this one, she's always hangs around me. And without being rude, a woman your age, you're better off with a dog who hangs around you. And she's little and you want to pick her up. She won't be a big dog to handle. So she was the one I was eyeing off in the litter anyway. So Daisy May came to join me. And Daisy May, you know, she weaves her magic through the apartment I'm in. You know, the little girl next door is now, you know, three years older and her mother photographs Daisy and her mother's a distinguished photographer. And Daisy just is part of the community. It has made a big difference to my life. I need people to care for and creatures to care for, really. And so... That satisfies that part of my life and she's a companion. I said to one of my children the other day, actually, I'm a cliche of an Iris Murdoch book, an older woman in an apartment with a dog. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't it wonderful that the effect that they can have, that's fantastic because that's what what a pet can be. Yes. I mean, just wonderful. You are an inspiration. Wendy, and I wrote in, in the back of your book, I've got so many notes all over it, I, I was writing down in preparation for this, I was trying to sum up why I felt your book uh, just was so was so powerful in your life that's been well written about, but I, I wrote this sentence in in the back of your book, and I'm putting words into your mouth, but, but it seemed to me that, that part of what you're saying is that life doesn't owe us anything. No one owes us anything. Uh, It's up to us to get off our backsides, count our blessings, face our challenges and make the most of life without being a victim. Would that would that be fair? That feels pretty good. Thank you, Nigel. Well, well, you said it, not me. And wow, it's not just women that you inspire. I think you inspire Mm. people. I'm going to ask you the six trick question. Who would you like to hear? You can't say Julia Gillard because we've already had her. Uh, Who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next? Ella Fitzgerald. No, we can't have her. She's no longer. <laughs> she's no longer. <laughs> we can't dig her up, Wendy. <laughs> I'd like to hear you interview either Megan Park, mm-hmm. who wrote crafted much of the Uluru Statement, or Larissa Berendt. And it's a toss between those two. They're both very articulate, but I think you will find something in them that other people haven't because of the way you approach the subject. And I think both of them would be your listeners would adore to hear and you would love to meet them. Wendy McCarthy, thank you so much for sharing your choices on The Five of My Life. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and Sixty. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.